I'm not the kind of person who just wants to capture a few inches or a few sort of uh, a small domain. I, I wake up, I, I would, I wake up every morning thinking about how can we win? How can we really, how can we really turn the tables here and, and change the direction of society meaningfully? And our enemies control almost every, uh, they control almost every institution in society in many ways. Mm -hmm. So what should be, what should be a our, our better friend than disruptive technology, than something that offers the path to actually reshuffle the deck in a meaningful way and change the, change the cards? In a sense, in a world where they control so much, conventional means just feel like an uphill battle that you're never going. It's going to be an absolute grind, and at best, you're going to capture a little bit. And I feel like that's been the conservative movement for a while. Whereas if we are able to embrace leverage if we if we recognize that we have our finger on something that's a trend that matters and you you combine that with the tools of leverage and technology and finance you can potentially achieve massive outsized results very quickly Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Nick Solheim. I'm the co-founder and COO of American Moment, and I'm joined by, as always, a wonderful guest this week. But before I get to that, I wanted to make sure to highlight a range of very exciting things that you can find on our website at AmericanMoment.org. You can find information about our programming from the Fellowship for American Statecraft, to Foundations of American Statecraft, to AM Fridays, or Frontiers of American Statecraft. We have so many programs going on right now. Things are kind of hectic around here. But make sure that if you're looking to learn more about us, what we do, uh, that you go and check those programs out. Um, we also have AmCanon, which is our resource that Jake so kindly puts together um, uh, every week, is always adding new pieces about the things that we've read that that have informed our views or probably more accurately radicalized us. Uh, so make sure to go check that out. Give it the attention it deserves. Um, and I'm sure you'll find some some various things that will interest you there. Um, so this week, I was very lucky uh, to have Nate Fisher of New Founding um, in the studio. Nate's been a, a great friend of mine and of America Moment for a very long time. Um, this is actually the third time we've We've tried to just our schedules are always conflicting. We were never able to get him down in the chair. Uh, so very happy to be able to do this episode. Um, it was it was great. It was a bit of a departure from, you know, the kinds of things that we normally talk about on this show, you know, very in the weeds, in depth policy, how the ideas that we have are going to change the world, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, we really focused this week on the world of uh, business and venture capital. Um, we talked about exciting things like, um, you know, what are the kinds of businesses that that conservatives can start? How can we win? What does a positive vision uh, for winning for conservatives in the business world look, look like? What kinds of mistakes have venture funds made in the past that created the conglomerates that we're dominated by now? Uh, very fascinating discussion. I always feel like I learn a lot when I spend time with Nate and and all the guys at New Founding are, are fantastic. Um, I love them. They also have, actually have a great uh, podcast. I think it's just called the New Founding Podcast, uh, where they interview founders and that sort of thing. You should go check it out. One of my favorite podcasts. Love to love to listen to it. Um, Nate Fisher is the chairman and co-founder of New Founding, a co-founder of American Reformer and and an investor and entrepreneur. He makes early stage venture investments and is the principal of NF Macro, a multi strategy investment firm. He previously co-founded TrustWork, an online platform for property maintenance services, and InvestRes, a $1.5 billion real estate investment company. We will go now to Nate Fisher. Nate, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So, you know how we like to start the show. Uh, who is Nate Fisher? Uh, how did you get where you are today? Tell us about everything that you're doing. So, I... Uh some background and then I think uh, a little bit how I approach the world. I, I I grew up upstate New York. I was homeschooled. So I'm 38 years old. I was homeschooled all 12 years, which was not usual at that time. It was sort of, it was not yet a, a very common thing. It was definitely not usual in New York. We had, uh, we had Mike Ferris's picture on our fridge for the Homeschool Legal <laughs> Defense Association. Uh, in case 
case uh, the cops were at the door trying to take us away for truancy. So, uh, but it was a really, it was a really wonderful upbringing. So it was, it, it was a very independent approach to education that my mom used. And I think really taught us to, I, I think taught, taught us to think, think, think independently about things, sort of practiced it. She was willing to do something that was very independent and countercultural at the time. Uh, it was a Christian upbringing. It was one that really shaped, uh, it was not, I would say my parents weren't as political, but they were definitely conservative Christians in how they believed and how they practiced. Uh, I grew up interested in politics, business, and technology and software. And I uh, programmed and invested and started businesses and, and and was really interested in politics. Went to went to college thinking I would go into politics. And uh, that was really my, my passion as I was getting to college, probably politics, maybe law of some sort. Spent a summer in D.C. And in that summer, I became convinced, and I think it was potentially an intentional, may not have been intentional from the program, it was a program, program called the Fund for American Studies. I became convinced that politics, D.C. politics at the time, was a place where Mitt Romney-style careerists rose uh, rose and climbed the ranks. And basically anyone with not consensus ideas was shunted to the side and going to be irrelevant. So I just, mm-hmm. I, I immediately shifted my mindset. I, I don't even recall giving it much thought. It was sort of obviously not a path I was interested in. And I just immediately decided uh, I'm going to go into business investing, investing. If you have a non-consensus view and you're right, you can make a lot of money. And so for me, I was always drawn to what is the what is the non-consensus but important and true viewpoint? I think that sums up a lot of how I how I look at things. And I'm I'm optimistic. I'm I'm optimistic that there's opportunities like that. And uh, that uh, that led me. I decided to go to law school uh, as a path into investing. Went to law school. I uh, graduated. Went into real estate, distressed real estate in Florida and Texas for uh, about three years, buying apartments. Uh, really benefiting from those red to blue state or blue to red state migration trends. And around what time? This was, was this? 2011. So yeah, okay. so went into distress, so graduated into one of the best distressing investing environments of of uh, the era. And I uh, partnered with a classmate and started very, very aggressively buying apartments. Uh, so really got to go straight into what I, I saw as the opportunity. I uh, met my wife at uh, at HLS and we uh, we got married a few years in and I uh, and so did that did that business, but never it was never going to be a, a career for me. Like I still those threads still uh, resonated. I was still interested in politics, and it was really in the Trump era that I realized that my thesis about politics was no longer true. Uh, politics was no longer a place where the Mitt Romney types were were climbing and non consensus ideas were getting you dismissed. Now Trump was driving this ideas driven paradigm shift where the 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 non consensus view was changing the movement and the Mitt Romneys were being shunted to the side. And I simultaneously saw that coming together in, in Silicon Valley. I was in Silicon Valley at that time and saw the technology world really embracing politics across uh, all of their narratives. I mean, you think of Facebook's mission at the time, make the world a more open and connected place. That is a political vision. Uh, I, I saw uh, sort of pervasive, you could say sort of a bull market in politics. It was everything was growing political and politics were growing more and more important and not just not just the narrow fake politics of the Romney Bush era but real political questions about about the country and that drew me that drew me to the question of I uh, here is here is a paradigm shift happening here's something that touches a number of things that I've I've been uh, focused on for my life here's the opportunity to have asymmetric impact and that really in many ways that that sums up I'm it's sort of where is the where is that opportunity to really move the needle in an important way yeah and so what do you tell us more about uh the organization that you're running now yep so i i approached it uh so it's a company called new founding it's a venture firm for the american right it's it's a firm where we will invest in companies will back at most mostly at this stage we'll be investing in through a fund that we launched just a few months ago uh, we launched a fund to invest in pre-seed and seed, which would be early stage companies where there is a clear nexus between the political and cultural trends that we're seeing, specifically those on the right, and some sort of outsized business opportunity. Yeah. So it's a uh, great example. We're, we're uh, leading the round, uh, the pre-seed round, the first round for a pro-life health insurance company. It's a uh, it's a company that is uh, 
in a space that has become a major problem in many, many areas of society. It's become deeply politicized. It's a space that people have become very politically aware. A number of people have switched their doctors over COVID, for instance, is enormous. Uh, and this is going to start by creating a product that explicitly appeals to people uh, on the right, specifically if the founders are Catholic and they're going to fit all the sort of criteria for Catholic ethics with the, what they mm -hmm. do and don't cover. Uh, but it also, I think, it's also just very, very innovative founders. They are they have been at some of the most innovative health insurance startups. They uh, they know what they're doing. They know the problems in the industry. And I think you'll have a cutting edge product that is in a space where I think health insurance is sort of a natural point of organization, uh, sort of a natural point of organization to serve as that integration layer to help uh, reshape the entire uh, healthcare space. Uh, mm -hmm. They could build an entire new network of doctors who don't require COVID vaccines, for instance, or who aren't going to trans your kid. And so I, I think it's a good illustration. I sort of dove into the details, but I think it's a good illustration of how we approach this, which is I'm looking for through the <clears throat> through the private sector, where in some sense, I think there's often less structural impediments than you face in conventional politics in D.C., the opportunity to play, uh, to, to push a lever that could actually meaningfully reshape uh, something with great political importance to Americans uh, and really help drive asymmetric impact, asymmetric change in the uh, in the country that way. Yeah, I, I want to dive deeper into that um, because I think a lot of people, particularly in our kind of faction of the conservative movement, are inherently skeptical of people in finance, like the finance industry. You know, they see kind of this economic shift that we've gone through over the last couple decades and kind of lay it at the at the feet of all these, you know, fund managers and that sort of thing and say, well, we prioritized, you know, line going up and, you know, what did we get for it? Uh, so why, why is what you're doing different and why does it matter? Well, I, I would, I would look at finance as, I would look at both finance and technology. I think what you said is absolutely true of technology as well. Uh, I would look at both finance and technology as levers. They are, they give you leverage. They give you power to do something. They are, they are, and as I, as I pointed to earlier, they have become important domains for, uh, in a sense, creating the future. I would say the, the flaw in the conservative movement, the classic sort of post-war conservative movement, is it's focused on, it, it reduces down to conserving good things without focusing on a, a true positive alternative vision for the future. Uh, so yes, it's natural that they're suspicious of both finance and technology, especially technology. Technology is going to inherently chip away at uh, good things that exist in the past and is going mm -hmm. to essentially guarantee that conservatism loses. Uh, a few great thinkers have made this point. John Escanis made this point. Uh, I think uh, Ted Kaczynski uh, made this point. <laughs> but uh, it, the, the problem, I think, is that if, if that's your only, if that's all you have as your political vision is conserving good things, you're going to lose because you're not going to stop technology. Yeah. Uh, I I don't believe that we need to limit it to that. I'm a Christian, so I think that I, I think that we have a dominion mandate to uh, fill the earth, to subdue it, to take dominion, and I think that involves a very strong positive vision for what we should be imagining for the world. And as a movement, I think we need to we need to really develop out an alternative positive vision that we can be competing for, rather than simply just trying to say no to the left's positive vision. Mm -hmm. uh, so. That leads to uh, th that leads to then the question of how to implement that. And if we have a positive vision that we're offering, uh, first off, if if we've seeded that space, if we hadn't haven't had that, it's natural that those who are looking for leverage, who are looking to achieve things, sort of default to a progressive vision in many cases. Uh, so in many cases, I think I think there's I think a lot of people in finance and technology truly are uh, they they have a uh, true belief in some sort of lefty vision. But for many of them, it's just that's the only they want to build something. They're ambitious people. They're builders. They're only being offered a vision by one side uh, uh, that is that, that allows them to embrace that creative potential. Uh, we should be offering an alternative. If we offer an alternative, I think we will draw a lot of people who are not satisfied with that. Uh, and then secondly, it's going to happen anyway. It's going to happen. And we... Uh, we should be players in that space. And that's kind of the the key. Uh, and then lastly, and this goes to disruptive technology, so I'm expanding a little bit on the finance, but 
our enemies control almost every uh, they control almost every institution in society in many ways. Mm -hmm. So what should be what should be a our, our better friend than disruptive technology than something that offers the path to actually reshuffle the deck in a meaningful way and change the change the cards in a sense in a world where they control so much conventional means just feel like an uphill battle that you're never going it's going to be an absolute grind and at best you're going to capture a little bit and i feel like that's been the conservative movement for a while whereas if we are able to embrace leverage if we if we recognize that we have our finger on something that's a trend that matters and you you combine that with the tools of leverage and technology and finance you can potentially achieve massive outsized results very quickly yeah i i think that um this is this is very interesting um i i, I think that you're right you know that basically every institution from uh you know business to government bureaucracies these big technology companies are almost exclusively owned by the left and it seems like what you're doing is kind of a david versus goliath situation how does something like newfounding scale um how do you get you know other people together to do the kinds of similar things that you're doing and then on the business side as well so it's absolutely right that in this space as in many other spaces the dominant players tend to be on the left and this is something that really goes to i think it goes to my psyche in, in some ways the question of of how do we how do we do that because i don't really just i i don't feel like i personally you ask who i am I'm not the kind of person who just wants to capture a few inches or a few sort of uh, a small domain. I, I wake up, I, I would, I wake up every morning thinking about how can we win? How can we really, how can we really turn the tables here and, and change the direction of society meaningfully? And I, I think it's, it, it requires a lot of creativity. In many ways, you look at great disruptive things and they are creative, they are creative and it's creativity applied to particular problems. I, uh, but I think the nature of technology is it does chip away at the status quo. It actually does offer the possibility of uh, disrupting something that is uh, an incumbent power and replacing it with something uh, potentially far more powerful. You think of how Yahoo was the dominant search engine in a sense. It was sort of the preeminent one, Yahoo, AOL, all of those. Google comes in and it just totally disrupts those. Google's yeah. going to be disrupted. I think very high probability Google's going to be disrupted even in the next two to three decades, or it's not going to be the preeminent power that it is today. Uh, who's going to Who's going to control that? Mm -hmm. It could be. It, it could be us. And I actually think not only could it be us, but I think we have some important advantages. And you think of the nature of dissident movements, and you think of the nature of what it takes to get new and disruptive technologies off the ground. And what we need to do is we need to think, what are our, obviously we have, we know our disadvantages. We have tremendous disadvantages. What are our advantages here? And the advantage is when you have a new disruptive technology, uh, I think there's two. One is we understand, we, we don't believe that we just have different values than the left. I think traditionally conservatives liked to sort of look at the world the same way. And then they would just say, well, we, you know, we believe abortion's bad. They believe abortion's good, whatever. No, I actually think, we look at the world differently. We have a different vision of the world. I think COVID highlighted this actually more than many things. Uh, we have a different vision of reality, and I believe we're right. And if you're right about important truths about the world, that is something that if you're if you're competing in business, you should. If you're competing in any domain, you should be willing to make bets on your beliefs. And if you're right, you should win in important. You could potentially win in very high stakes ways. So. We have a correct understanding of human nature. I believe they have a flawed understanding of human nature. Many new and disruptive technologies are going to be deeply shaped by your views about human nature. Uh, I think Facebook's sort of failure to achieve many of its sort of dreams of a more open and connected world reflected the fact that they had naively idealistic views of, of what their technology would do. Mm -hmm. uh, Silicon Valley has failed to create trust in any meaningful way. They failed to really mediate trust. Their networks are very consumeristic rather than than trust driven. And I think that reflects the fact that they don't understand they don't understand the sort of richer side of human of human relationships and of human community. And so they've failed to build tools that facilitate that. Uh, then I think the maybe the biggest advantage we face is we when you build something new so let's say you have a new disruptive technology let's say it's sort of a clearly superior 
starting point in terms of paradigm, uh, who are going to be the early adopters? That's always a significant challenge. You have incumbents, and it's usually very comfortable to stay with the incumbents. Early adoption is risky. Early adoption is often an inferior product in many ways. It's, it's an inferior experience on the whole, even if an aspect is superior. Uh, who's going to be a, a natural early adopter but people who are uh, profoundly dissatisfied with the status quo. And I think that's often going to be dissidents and Christians, particularly sort of particularly strong, solid little dissident Christian communities. Uh, you've talked about Moscow, Idaho. That's a, a great example. Like you could potentially get an entire community like that to get over to a new technology and you're going to have an entire network effect very quickly and you can then build from there. And that's how uh, that's how America was built in, in a sense. The, the first you had sort of the pioneers, the individualists, uh, the libertarians, so to speak, the, mm. the sort of people who are in crypto now. But the first communities to really move as communities and gain that dominant network effect here and in many ways shape the culture, predominantly shape the culture of the new world were uh, deeply religious, profoundly dissatisfied communities that had a sort of insularity that drove them to move together. And if we, if we recognize that propensity and recognize what new technologies are are at that point where they're ready for that sort of early early community adoption and we help shepherd that and we make sure that the companies that are now controlling that technology are in the hands of our people then th there's a very clear path to our side controlling the next google so what does conservatives winning in the economy look like very practically speaking i'll use technology a little bit more directly but i think they're they're so integrally related i uh, let's say we had well first i'll use the health insurance example just because that's that's one that we're already talking about here that one means that the and that's tough because there's government regulation so there'll be limits on what you can achieve but uh, one where what is covered and what is valued is uh, is going to reflect our our view of what's good, our view of what's what's appropriate. The type of doctors, the networks of doctors, the incentives in the system, all point in a direction that is consistent with our our values. It's not a system that necessarily pushes stuff that we don't trust. Uh, that, that we have good reason not to trust uh, on us. And obviously, there's there's a there's a lot of government component there. There's there's a lot of private sector, but to the extent the the health insurer plays a role in this. They're not pushing you or incentivizing you to go get some sort of uh, medical intervention that we would we would be skeptical of. We, I mean, first off, I think just there's a epistemological suspicion that we as conservatives would have of uh, of a sort of technocratic conceit that we can evaluate uh, the world with a, a great deal of confidence based on, let's say, limited scientific. Uh, uh, analysis. So I think that there's a there's an epistemological humility that I think is inherent in conservatism, and that would be applied to how we think about treatment. That would be applied to how we think about coverage and incentives. Uh, getting into I think a more probably a more powerful example and going to the disruptive technology. I imagine we had a Google alternative. Uh, increasingly, more and more of your decisions online and off are mediated by. Uh, digital algorithms. So where you go to eat, maybe I mean, maybe yes, maybe no. But for a lot of times, where I go to eat is in many ways mediated by Yelp, mediated by Google. I type in lunch in Google, and it recommends places. I look at the rating system, and uh, there are values laden in all of those algorithmic recommendations. It's 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 actually inherent. You think of an algorithmic recommendation. You think of the Google search result. You type something in the Google search result. There's a number one result. There's number two result, number 10, number 100, so on. There must be a value system that determines why one is ahead of two. It cannot be neutral. And I think this is its an important point uh, that supports sort of the new right trend over the old right. The old right likes a sort of procedural neutrality. They often even talk, I, th I think, th they talk about this ideal of public neutrality. Well, if more and more of life is now mediated by, in many cases, monopoly platforms that are inherently value-laden, you can't have neutrality. And the left knows this. I mean, you saw the left pushing AI algorithmic justice or some sort of whatever euphemism they came up with, going back to after the 2016 election, and they realized that neutral, it wasn't neutral, it was actually 
rewarding engagement, neutral is not going to get them what they want. And so they need to catechize the bots, to use a term that a colleague, James Poulos, has used. They need to catechize the bots with uh, with their religion, their woke religion that de-emphasizes hate or whatever they would say. Well, I think we do we do the same. We should have we should catechize the bots uh, of the digital platforms that are going to mediate more and more of life with with a value system that truly elevates the good, mm-hmm. elevates the good, the true, and the beautiful. And there's all sorts of contexts where I mean, imagine you go to a search engine, you type something, and let's say you type in kids' books in the search engine, and it actually elevates good content in kids' books. You go to Google now, you type that in, it's probably going to elevate something. Anti-racist baby. <laughs> yeah, at best. You it know? might be transing your kid for all you know, subtly. Mm-hmm. So it, it's going to elevate all sorts of horrible things, but or or it's just going to be neutral, and it's going to essentially, the, the algorithm will try to stay neutral, but it'll essentially elevate those sort of credentialed elites, credentialed authorities in other places that are probably catechized with a particular value set. We we could catechize that algorithm to actually elevate, uh, recognize it's not just relevance or hits or something, but it's actually some definition of the good that people are looking for when they type a result in. And that incre- increasingly Google's doing that, but not in a way that reflects our values. Yeah, they're doing it with like LGBTQ plus yep. friendly or whatever. Um, disinformation I, is a huge one. They define disinformation in ways that are yeah that are very slanted yeah i the the thread about um a google alternative is very very interesting uh to me this is something that i've been i've been pretty critical of uh in the past you know this idea that we basically need to just create you know right leaning or actually i think in many cases neutral a lot of people kind of default back to this well we just need something that's unbiased you know this has been kind of a refrain of a lot of folks in the business world think we just need to go back to the way business the way they interpret the way business was in the 80s and 90s um how do you think about building an alternative economy as it relates to creating you know products that may exist already in some form um, but is slanted in the opposite direction versus entirely new products that people have not yet conceived of so my my interest by far goes to the latter i as i said i I wake up and i think about how we can win and you're you're almost never going to win a category by just creating a, a copycat of it i mean creating a sort of conservative amazon for instance that's that's first of all. That's the last company in the world that I would want to compete with. It's it's a it, a lot of what they do is very very hard to do well. And uh, so, if you if you just try to create a, a sort of copy, you're you're maybe going to pick off a sort of niche market share. Uh, you need to strive to do better. We should strive to do better. And and first off, we recognize that wokeness, DEI, all of that is increasingly going to degrade the incumbent companies in a way that is going to create vulnerabilities. Uh, but secondly, I think going to the Google example, like how do you beat, from a thought experiment, how do you beat Google? Not just how do you have your conservative alternative to Google, but how do you beat Google? You have to offer a better product. You have to offer a product that the vast majority of people are going to find better and more useful, or at least a large share of the people uh, in, in situations that matter are going to find better and more useful. And maybe it's not a direct one-to-one analog, but Think about their vulnerabilities. So, because uh, I mean, just going back to the previous point, if you just try to copy a company, first of all, you're just not even going to get as good as they are. You're going to be almost, you're almost guaranteeing inferiority on things. And you're also, so you're going to have, you're going to have the sort of niche audience that you're aiming for with values. That's going to be reduced by the fact that there's already inertia for keeping people from moving. Then you're going to have often an inferior product, so that's going to reduce your market even more. And it's only a sort of a minority of the country that even cares that much about politics in, in these decisions, period. So it sort of guarantees that you're, you're at best going to be sort of a, a, a tiny niche market. Now, that can be great in certain cases. I actually think, I actually think for something, uh, for, for a lot of categories, that's like kids' content. That's that's still valuable. It still provides an incredibly valuable service to our people. It is actually a better product, even if it might be seen as subjective in many ways. It's actually a, a meaningfully better product for the people who are who are buying them. So I've I've absolutely no problem with that type of business, uh, and I think it can be a good way to make good money with relatively low risk. It's kind of like you have the market. You know who the market is going to be. You just got to go essentially execute and give them what they want. And you're not trying to take any technological risk. You're not trying to do anything 
super innovative, which means it's less risky from a business standpoint, but you're immediately creating value. Yeah, it's That's, just better content. Yeah, better content. Uh, yeah. Sometimes it, it sometimes it might just be a straight up sort of value. So it might. I mean, you could imagine something that's a very similar product, but its advertisements just don't offend you. And that's worth something. And that advertising is something that reinforces cultural values. So I'm not going to I'm not going to dismiss that, but that's not going to turn the tide, whereas the Google one is and, and getting to kind of a couple of of ways that we would have had have an advantage. I already got to the point of early adopters and how we could get early adopters to a potentially superior solution. But then the question becomes, what would a potentially superior solution look like? And I think I would say that recognition of the good, of the algorithm that actually elevates the good, that is actually, that is so core to Google's business that our ability to think clearly about those questions actually allows us to produce a vastly superior product. So if you think about Google, they are that they come from a technocratic mindset. In many ways, I would say they don't have a, they don't know how to define the good. They don't even know how to think about the good. They don't know what that means. They don't, they don't have the epistemological foundation to distinguish spam from non-spam. And theoretically, that should be the entire purpose of a search engine, should be able to distinguish what is worth seeing. And so if you can't, if you can't define man and woman, then there's going to be a lot of problems with uh, ranking information and providing information, and that's going to lead to very muddled thinking, and it's going to lead to their inability to actually deliver just practical value to a lot of people who still seek that. And that's a vulnerability that I think goes uh, – it's a vulnerability that goes to the core of their uh, their utility, and they can kind of punt on that. They can kind of go to get you the results that you want, that you find useful, which I think they'll do, which is very subjective, but – that's ultimately that's not going to be as good of a product as a product that can actually get you something more than you already know that you want. That can get you something that is uh, th that you go there and you actually get sort of surprised by the informative uh, results. So I think that's a that's a key vulnerability. And I'm using Google, but that applies to almost all the content out there. I mean, it's almost like it's sort of notable that Facebook is moving its feed in a direction that's more purely algorithmic like TikTok. It's like everything is converging toward this TikTok model where they can reward engagement and it's algorithmically driven, but they have but they have very little sense of any sort of higher value they're providing. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that gets to what is a higher value. There's the good and then I think trust. I, I touched on trust earlier. You, you think of the value of networks and the value of networks come from both their size, but they also come from the the value of the connections, the significance and importance of connections that are made within those networks. And uh, you think of like your participation in the Facebook network. That is not a valuable. That is not a valuable network. It's its market cap is approximately. I, I don't know the exact number, but let's say it's three hundred billion dollars, and it has uh, a billion and a half daily average users. That's a a value, a market value of. $200 per user per network, which is just not a not a big share of your, and that's that's in a market cap, it's more than the annual value. The annual value is a fraction of that. That's a tiny fraction of your life that is, if you even use Facebook, that is, uh, that is sort of attributed to value in that network. Uh, contrast that with, let's say, a church or a country club that you're deeply invested in. Like that is a network where because of the bonds that are built there, because of the sort of the rich strength of the trust, it's the kind of place where a recommendation can get you a job. It's the kind mm -hmm. of place that could result in you, you. You can do very high value interactions that come out of that network. And yes, it's small. And, and a lot of times those don't scale as well. But they can scale a lot more than I think many people assume. And historically, in many cases, high trust communities, high trust networks have often scaled to tens, hundreds of thousands of people in important ways. Uh Ways that are just totally absent from the the digital world today. Uh, example I give is often immigrant certain immigrant communities where at even at the hundreds of thousands you go at, at sixteen let's say you go work for someone who's a, a businessman there you you do a good job for a few years you impress him and he can his recommendation then gets you access to capital it gets you access to opportunity essentially a sort of alternative credentialing system to the prompt to the the primary sort of university bureaucratic university driven one. If that type of value, uh, the mediation of trust comes online, I think something like that could, it, it could very, very quickly, even at a relatively moderate scale, even at the scale of hundreds of thousands or millions of people, be a far more powerful 
that, that kind of value compounds very quickly and gets rich. That could be a far more powerful network than even the biggest digital networks today. Yeah. It strikes me that uh, in many industries, you either have a monopoly at the top or um, so like you mentioned Amazon as an example, that's an mm -hmm. example of that, right? Like they basically got, you know, shopping online and shipping down mm -hmm. on lock. And then you have other industries like let's even just say the coffee business, right? Where it's like an amalgamation of several companies and you have things like Black Rifle Coffee as an example, right? Like we're trying to make something that's more, they say conservative, I would say values neutral. But um, uh, looking at something like that and seeing, you know, that doesn't really work. Um, what are what are some industries? Basically, my point is that that these are kind of, I think a lot of industries are like that. Yep. So, so what are some of the industries out there? Aside, you've obviously mentioned healthcare um, that are ripe for disruption. So that's a good question, and part of it is it's something that I I think is I have to remain opportunistic. I mean, I think I think Google is actually ripe for disruption. And going to the monopoly, one way I think one way you can think of a monopoly, especially in a digital age, a monopoly that mediates your life, is it's almost it's almost like a layer of government. I uh, I think of the different domains, and you can think of sort of the digital domain, federal domain, the state domain, local level. The domains that I know will matter will be the local and the digital. I actually have less of a theory of, let's say, how significant the federal government will be in 30, 50 years. I, it may or may not remain a, a primary layer of organization, but we know the digital layer will matter. And the monopolies that control the digital layer, and there's a lot of natural network monopolies there. But effectively, there's going to be a monopoly. It will be playing a significant role in potentially mediating decisions throughout all layers of your life. That's effectively a government, mm -hmm. and uh, that that goes to the question of the good, right? It it, it should be governed for the common good. Uh, right now, as I look at the current network monopolies, I would say they are all vulnerable because none of them are acting. None of them are acting like, except maybe Amazon. Amazon is actually pretty effective if you think of sort of the legitimacy that comes from effectiveness. Amazon does some very hard things, like gets you packages overnight. That's that's hard to compete with. That's a, a sort of legitimacy. Uh, but the uh, although it, I think its product recommendation and some of that stuff is flawed, and that's actually a much more values laden thing. So that's a more important one. Uh, I think all of those are vulnerable. I think uh, I think that across different aspects, probably less SaaS actually. I mean, SaaS is one where uh, so Salesforce things like that. Uh, it, it's it, it is a nat it is sort of a natural monopoly. Uh, it is a serious threat. Uh, I think you'll have people choose alternatives that they can trust that are values aligned. And you saw after you saw uh, after the Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and you had all these tech companies essentially deplatform Russia as a country. I think you'll have a lot of countries recognize that their sovereignty is is at stake if they depend on American tech companies, American SaaS companies. Uh, so you will see a, a drive for alternatives. I don't know that that'll look like disruption per se, though. I think yeah. in many cases, that'll just be a sort of parallel alternative, maybe an open source alternative or something. Uh, whereas I think the big tech networks, uh, particularly the the, the uh, particularly the ones whose product is values driven are, uh, are ripe for disruption. I would say areas that areas that interest us a lot of the crypto related technology interest the sort of decentralized technology that interests me because it is a it is in many ways i think some model some level of decentralized is a superior model and that it doesn't require you to trust a centralized party to the same degree and we're in a world where there's sort of a systematic decline of trust you're seeing the sort of steady decline of institutional trust and societal trust and in a world where, where where divisions are growing and where trust is is lacking, you are going to see more and more people seek an alternative that doesn't require uh, doesn't require trusting someone who could be politically hostile to you. Doesn't require trusting someone who could be ordered to shut you down by a court that's politically hostile to you, even if they don't want to be political. So I think that that aspect of not just having the company aligned with you, but actually tying their own hands technologically in the way <laughs> the architect, the software, is going to be a in a more and more sort of chaotic and divided and even anarchy, more and more sort of chaotic and divided world, that is going to be a, 
a winning formula in important ways if they can combine good user experience with uh, a, a degree of digital sovereignty. Yeah. So I'm curious, you know, j just throw out an example, like let's say um, consumer goods, generally speaking. So things like groceries, stuff for your house, you know, things you can buy at Walmart. Is it, is that something like it strikes me as, you know, we, we don't do a lot of manufacturing of those goods uh, in the United States anyway. Like what, what do you think about something like that? So that's a that's a it's a tough space and it's a yeah. tough space precisely because it's you, you're competing with China in many cases. I I would say there's going to be a lot of change in that space and you're you're probably going to end up seeing more reshoring or more nearshoring. Uh, and I think you can come up with different reasons for that. Actually, a concept we're working on is the idea of a it would be an investment sort of an investment consultant to promulgate a doctrine that would be an alternative to ESG. And the doctrine that I'm working on is one that fundamentally recognizes that distance, distance of any sort is a factor, is a risk factor mm. that is probably a risk factor that is neglected by current current financial models. So if you have a company that has a, a long supply chain, if it has a lot of operational leverage in various ways, that should be something that should require you to to demand a higher equity return, a higher yeah. equity cost of capital. So not just China, but like also India. Any, as an example. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think I, I think distance, and I would say distance, I would also say sort of levels of political divide and things. So there's a lot of different ways you can look, but but certainly, yes, India would also be a risk. I mean, anywhere that's not anywhere that is anything that adds a layer of unpredictability should be priced in. And I think if we have a sort of, if we have a systematic recognition, which you already recognize with financial leverage, right? So you add leverage to a company, you add debt to a company, and the required equity return goes up in all of the models. But you add operational leverage, which can be a lot of things. It can be just-in-time supply chains. It can be, it can be uh, outsourcing production to another country. All of those things also create risk. And in a world of greater and greater global disruptions, you are going to see more and more risk. So I would say it's not that you're necessarily going to see a sort of disruption of those so much as you're going to see a, a sort of structural incentive pushing toward uh, toward models that have less risk there. And that's going to be a, that'll be a gradual process. Uh, now, consumer goods, I think there's also the values thing that is very significant. They, they have advertisements, advertisements, uh, don't just inform you about the product, but they create they create demand. They they essentially sell you on an aspirational vision of life, mm -hmm. and that's where we're seeing a sharp divide there. Where essentially the the left is pushing a vision of life that is fundamentally different than the one that that excuse my left hand. The left is pushing a vision of life that's fundamentally different than the one that the right is uh, has to offer, and in many ways a very unattractive vision of life. I mean, it's, yeah, it is literally ugly. The 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 picture of life that they show you and you go to a lot of cities and you see the sort of degradation of the cities you see the just the the people the way that they dress all of that is something where they've just embraced they've 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 dismissed beauty so i think you'll you'll see alternatives that actually they they have beauty in their ads uh that is going to appeal to a group of people who are not attracted to what the left offers in ads uh you're gonna have products that are consistent with that we have a product it's called kindred harvest and it's a it's first product is tea they're also adding honey and certain other things where it's really natural organic sort of industrial pollutant free glue free heavy metal free plastic free all of that stuff with the tea bags and all that very high-end stuff uh that that sort of health and wellness lifestyle, being aware of of a, a product that doesn't have a lot of industrial pollutants, that is something that the right is increasingly demanding, and they're at the forefront of demanding. I, I certainly think that there will be there there will be an early adopter base on the right that's drawn to things like that. Uh, I think you'll see a sort of broader. I suspect you'll see a broader shift toward that model, that approach to things. Uh, across sort of the middle. So you could think of that as sort of a disruptive force toward consumer products that reflect a different set of priorities and a different vision in life. Yeah. So something I'm I'm thinking about here is, you know, the amount of people that are going to make, that are going to realign their decisions based on not necessarily, you know, the wokeness of a given company or whatever, but legitimately just because they want better stuff. Uh, 
like stuff that's actually just better made, like not cheap Chinese crap, um, or they're in the in the service based industry in particular, like um, someone where they can uh, or a business where they can they can talk to a person that speaks English. Yep. Right. Do, do you think more decisions are going to be made kind of along that route than the wokeness necessarily? Yeah, I think that in some sense, the sort of political say, well, it's hard to say exactly uh, in the current market, in the current market, I think there's going to be a group that makes a decision based on politics. But then there will be a broader group that makes a decision because it's just a better product. And using the life insurance or the, the health insurance company as an example, I think their initial product is a product that is. Uh, it's non-ACA, it's innovative. It, it also fits all these Catholic standards. That is going to particularly, and, and really broadly, a lot of Christians are going to, broad range of Christians will care about a lot of these things. The first people that I'll resonate with is a subset of people where they hear it exists and they immediately want it. They know that this is a problem. They know that this is a sector that gives them a lot of, a lot of grief, a lot of angst. Uh, they're going to move for a political uh, reason. However, I actually think that this can be a better product in important ways. Uh, it's it's operating in a way where it's just an industry that's incredibly bureaucratic and incredibly uh, sclerotic in many ways in how they approach things. And you have a you have an innovative startup here that is that is attuned to many of the, the sort of newer trends in, in delivery of medicine. Uh, things that allow more wellness, let's say they reduce the overall cost and they incentivize, the incentives are better aligned with a model that that uh, produces health rather than delivers health care. Uh, and that could be a product that is just cost effective in an area that is one of the most uh, concerning and expensive products, one of the, the biggest financial challenges for a very wide range of people. So you could actually see something where they're at the forefront and a lot of these legacy systems are just they have so many incentives baked. They have so much baked into their their current products. It's hard for them to just adjust in a way that ever makes them as competitive. Yeah, uh, and that's going to just drive a lot of you have a, a lot of people care about health. You don't have to be super political to realize this is going to get you uh, get you what you need at a lower cost. Well, most people hate their health insurance company yeah. too. Um, between the amount of money that they have to spend and how frustrating it is to deal with them. Um, so a, a, a trend that I've noticed. Um, recently is this kind of um i mean i can reference uh, uh the benedict option kind of as an example here where you have a lot of you know conservatives uh christians uh who really what they want is to just kind of be left alone mm -hmm. so so they want to um you know get married have kids um you know work a, a normal job and buy products from people that don't hate them um I, I my guess would be that I think we're seeing less of these people going in and starting new businesses. Yeah. Um, do you think and, and, and traditionally that has not been the case, right? It's been it's been conservatives that have, you know, started kind of the as we've talked about these these big shifts. Um, how do you think we kind of recover that mentality uh, as as conservatives? So, and it's a, it's a really good question. I actually don't know if it would be conservatives who have traditionally started. Certainly, it's people who might not be associated with the left. Uh, in many ways, I think what you describe is sort of a natural instinct of conservatives. Yeah. Uh, whereas I think, great, I think many of the great entrepreneurs in our country's history have been, they, they've been people who are, who, are, who are inherently branching up from their community. They're looking for something more. Uh, yeah. it, it's a similar drive to sort of the drive for politics in many ways. It's it's the question of who goes to D.C., who does things like that. People want to people want to have impact at a greater scale. I uh, I think it's I think it's recovering an alternative positive vision. This is again why going back to why am I doing venture? One thing I love about venture is venture is perhaps the best. I think it is a domain that is perfectly suited to start to articulate a positive vision here. Uh, if the if we don't yet have a startup in an area that I think should be changed, should be disrupted, we can start to put out thought leadership on it. We can start to put out ideas around what should happen. Here's here's our understanding of the problem. Here's an opportunity that we see. Here's what here's what a right wing vision of this space would look like. And 
that serves as a little bit of a call to action for entrepreneurs. It's a call for ideas. It's a call for people to think about this. And potentially someone has the skills to go build that. And so it's a it's a it's a great platform to flesh that out. And I think the biggest missing need in our movement is that positive vision. In many ways, I think the new right has tried to do that, but it's a little bit ham- hamstrung by the fact that they're still focused off on a sort of policy and government space. And as much as I I reject the the con inc limitations of the sort of a dogmatic limitation of government, I think nonetheless, I remain deeply pro-market. I think markets remain the best solution. Most things should be done through the private sector. doesn't mean that government can't play a role in encouraging that, but the right platform for most aspects of a positive vision will remain something in the private sector. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and and trying to do that through policy, through a vision of policy and government is just going to, uh, I mean, I, I'm even wary, I'll, I'll say I'm wary of a lot of the big tech uh, regulatory things that you see coming out of the new right, because there's lots of unintended consequences. I, I sort of, it's easy to see how that will play out in a way that will just cement power with our enemies. Uh, or I think it's just, it's actually very difficult. It would be, think of the sort of Google for the good. There's almost no way that regulators can actually achieve regulation of the Google algorithm from DC. Whereas I think that in a sense, Google itself is sort of a layer of government (laughs) and the entity that disrupts Google is going to arise from the private sector, but it's almost like a sort of it's almost like one regime defeating another regime to take control of a, a a domain that now matters. Are you now who's taking control of the ocean now in the age of trade? And that I uh, you, you can't sort of come in and outside regulate the algorithm. I, I think China had the state capacity to do that, but uh, which they they largely have there. But I, I don't think that could happen in America. I think it would be too challenging with our constitutional culture and many things. But I think an entrepreneurial vision of what a different, better positive value Google looks like is something that absolutely could uh, could arise. And so it, it's I think I, I think being in a place where you're able to develop those thoughts and then push the levers that turn those thoughts into action is uh, is 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 at the heart of where it, it's at the heart of where the problem lies at the heart of where the opportunity lies in our movement. What do you think? other venture funds have done wrong to get us to where we are now? I think part of it is many of them, many of them have have embraced a left-wing ideology. And as going back to the point that venture is sort of an inherently political space, all everything in many ways sort of most aspects of life are inherently political in some sense, sort of in the Aristotelian sense of how do we live together well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but venture particularly and in, in startups are by nature they're they're envisioning something that doesn't exist and they're they're building it. They're deciding what to build and they're building it and especially in a digital network age that has profoundly political implications. I uh, I would say most of them have bought into a doctrine an inherently globalist doctrine here. So they the type of technology they're building and they're backing is designed to break to fundamentally it's about breaking down natural barriers it's about using technology to chip away at and to bypass natural sort of barriers i uh, rather than thinking about how to build as an example build technology that that strengthens community bonds that offers tools to i mean an example i give that that we're working on this problem is say you had a tool that would allow you say, say you say you want something you need a recommendation for something if you could ask for a recommendation in your church that's great you might get some good recommendations but the volume is not there but what if there were tools that made it easier and easier for you to sort of get more and more out of local and aligned communities that really matter you could get recommendations from your church and maybe from 10 aligned churches in the area or in the in the uh denomination things like that are you're actually building technology to to lever these existing bonds. Uh, I would say that's a fundamentally different way of looking at technology, whereas the current venture ones are almost always trying to think, th- their default solution is almost always sort of inherently individualistic, depersonalized, global in some way. Yeah, I would say the other one is they are actively, uh, I mean, they're often actively embracing a transhumanism in terms of their values. So they'll embrace, they'll embrace 
whenever possible, sort of technology replacing people rather than technology complementing people. And this actually leads to an important error that they've made that is a great example of how you would how you would earn more money. So I think engineers, engineers and economists for 50 years have been they've sort of viewed brokers as just transa- unnecessary transaction costs waiting to be intermediated, waiting to be disintermediated and replaced. Uh, they, they see them as having very little value in the engineering mindset in the in the technocratic econ- economic mindset. There's just there's not value to this intermediary who's who's building relationships at the country club or whatever. Uh, they failed time and time and time again. They've bet on on attempts to disintermediate the brokers and they've failed and they've failed because they have a flawed vision of human nature that doesn't recognize the sort of profoundly important role in building trust and brokering trust and and all of that that brokers actually play so a better alternative would be one that actually recognizes recognizes the significance of things like that and provides tools that lever that provide leverage to the brokers they augment the broker they are they, someone has the skill and they allow them to be more productive maybe they're helping them replace the the sort of bureaucratic busy work so they can do even more of what the core of their job is mm. uh but the problem and this is part of why it gets us here is if you have a flawed vision but you have lots of money behind it and you do build something that's innovative in certain ways it still may serve to move the world in that direction you try to replace you try to replace people in a certain capacity you may well succeed in replacing it. You may get corporations to adopt it and they change their work practices in a way that are technocratically managing or replacing those people. Even if the solution ends up being inferior, it doesn't, the promises don't bear out. You've still, you, you've still moved the world in a direction that is much more, uh, much more sort of technology driven, technology managed, and in many cases, actually inferior in output. So it's, uh, you've lost the sort of skill or craft uh that is at the core of uh i think that, that is at the, at the core of a well-developed human civilization and, and certainly the economic economic side of that uh you've replaced it with something that's inferior uh or the or, or even just not a meaningful step forward in important ways uh but you've done so because you put enough resources in the belief there that that does tend to drive it i think we've seen that i would say the stagnation in our country today is broadly a result of tra- of squeezing the human out of finance squeezing the human out of business and replacing it with technocratic processes the human has the element of surprise it has the element of innovation uh, of entrepreneurial creation that in many ways i think channels god's creation of the world in genesis 1 that's the most fundamentally human thing we do and our modern system wants to replace any decision that has that that surprise, that unpredictability, with something that can be analyzed, improved in spreadsheets. Uh, or maybe they'll trust artificial intelligence, even if it's a little bit more of a black box. Mm-hmm. They'll trust artificial intelligence more than human <clears throat> intelligence. But ultimately, that's I think not creative in the same way. And so you end up with you end up with a system that has just lost the it, it's lost the life. I mean, I think that the the vitality of life includes that human creative element and and we've squeezed the life often intentionally uh based on a transhumanist or technocratic vision we've squeezed the life out of our economy squeezed the life out of our society yeah the uh the second part of that answer is what i'm most interested in um you know i know it seems like um you know amazon google facebook like these sorts of things run our run our lives but um You've mentioned several times during the episode that a lot of these industries are kind of ripe for disruption. And so I'm wondering from an investment strategy perspective, if you were in their shoes, whether you actually think they've made, again, taking the political part out of it, if they've actually made good investments or if they're about to lose out on a bunch of stuff because we're going to innovate in a way that they're not. They're certainly... I would clearly if you've invested in Amazon, you've done very well. Yeah. So it's hard to hard to fault them on that. And I would actually say going to this sort of going to that last point about the 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 life, the the creative human investment. I actually think venture capital remains perhaps the one bright spot in the economy where the rest of the economy has actually gone far more technocratic. Venture continues to make sort of bold bets on people. I think they have some flaws in how they approach it, but it remains something where very, very creative, very smart people are thinking about 
the future in very innovative ways, innovative ways, and they're willing to take a significant bet on that that is that cannot be penciled out the way you can pencil out the returns on an apartment building. So, uh, so I, I, I hold venture in relatively high regard relative to a lot where I think much of the in so much of the economy, you've, you've gone in the exact opposite direction where you've gone to an index fund model where it's it's BlackRock. BlackRock epitomizes bureaucratic allocation of capital. Vast majority of people there are not investors in any meaningful sense. They have no ability to assess a sort of a, a truly innovative risk. Uh, they're doing what computers are doing or they're or they're even replacing, they're, they're attempting to replace discretion altogether. And that I think is, and, and you actually see that in hiring as well, where in hiring you systematically replace knowing someone interviewing them, evaluating them, <clears throat> taking a risk on them with, we're going to out, essentially outsource that to a sort of credentialing system that's just going to rank the person according to some standards. And then we can tweak the rankings if we want more of this type of diversity, because our model says that it's not really the, it's really ideology, but we have a model that says you get this diversity and this is going to result in a better outcome because diversity is our strength because McKinsey said it in this study or whatever. And <laughs> you, you can, it's a technocratic model that's actually perfectly conducive to wokeness. I. Uh, that's where I would say they're really losing. So there they really are losing. It, it, it's, it can be okay at sort of continuing to earn money from something that has a lot of, uh, a lot of profit. Although, as you saw with Bud Light, that, that mindset can lead to catastrophic errors that would not be made by a, a sort of that, – that would not be made by a well-rounded human with good judgment who really understands their market. Yeah, uh, but so, I, but I think even more they're losing upside and opportunity in that space. So that's where I would say the the big errors are. I do think that Silicon Valley has some blind spots that's going to lead them to uh, large amounts of venture money have chased sort of the large amounts have chased certainly on the social network side certain types of networks that I think have not really borne out uh, the the full promise. Uh, and there's I think a lack of there's a lack of appreciation for where potentially much bigger opportunities are. Yeah, and that's kind of hitting on what I'm what I'm getting at. Um, in you know maybe as a, a, a venture fund guy, you know you got you got lucky with Amazon, you got your whale right, but with how far divorced you are from what human beings actually want, can you ever win again? You often, what's interesting is you do often see, you see a number of venture capitalists who are sort of one hit wonders. They uh, they nail something that's outside the box like that. They often build a successful practice because then you can recruit, you can get a lot of capital and, and you can then get the hotter founders at certain stages. They come to you, you're, you're a, a prestigious venture capitalist, but they don't necessarily, they don't nail the next big thing. They don't have another innovation there because mm -hmm. it's, it. It wasn't grounded in maybe a holistic understanding of what's needed. So yeah. that's certainly uh, that is certainly a risk. Yes. Interesting. Well, Nate, thank you very much uh, for coming on the podcast. Where where can people find you, find new founding, keep up with all the important work that you guys are doing? Absolutely. So I'm on Twitter, very active on Twitter, Nate A. Fisher on Twitter. Uh, you can go to our website, newfounding.com. And there's a number of ways that we would like to uh, interact with people. I mean, ultimately, we're looking for, we're looking to get to know a wide range of people who are interested in this movement. Uh, I think it's something, I, I think the fact that there's a positive vision as part of it can actually be of interest to the broader broader movement. And I'll, I'll add sort of one thing here, particularly related to a lot of people in the new right in politics is I think that. I think pursuing this positive vision, developing some of these ideas through something like venture offers a bridge even between between old right people who are nervous about uh, departure from markets and new right people who know that we need a positive vision and they're not content to just sort of settle for old platitudes. So I think there's actually, uh, I, I don't even know exactly how this plays out in DC, but I think there's opportunities for 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 partnerships to develop something that that we all see as needed which is this positive vision so i'm, I'm interested in those conversations uh, i sort of wide ranging f for people across politics i uh, biggest way to get involved right now at, we're a venture firm i uh, you if you have a startup 
come to us. We want to hear from you, especially if there's a political element to it, if you're reaching people on the right through the market. Uh, we want to hear from you. As investors, we launched our fund. It's on AngelList. You can find the website. You can find it on our website, newfounding.com. You can find the, the page talking about that. Tremendous opportunity in this space. Uh, it's early innings of something that I think is growing very large. So there's opportunity to invest for accredited investors to invest in it. Uh, for other partners in, in business, uh, we have a talent network. Uh, we get people often out of woke companies into non-woke companies and increasingly into sort of exciting startups that are actually building this future that, that let you go day to day to work and build the America you want to live in. So if you go there, you can sign up for our talent network. You can uh, you can get involved at something where it's a growing network of people. And increasingly, there's a growing network of companies that are looking for for talented and ambitious people. So uh, again, I website has a lot of this it's it, it's startups it's it's capital investment it's it's talent if you're a company that's hiring and then very active on twitter all right thank you very much all right thanks nick thank you everyone for joining us uh again this week for another fantastic episode of moment of truth thank you to nate uh, for being so charitable with his time and and finally you know we were able to make everything work to get him here in the chair to record, uh, make sure you go check out uh, New Founding and check out everything that that Nate's working on. It's all really cool stuff that I don't have the aptitude to do, so I'm very glad somebody uh, is is doing it. Make sure you go to our website, AmericanMoment.org, uh, to find out more about all the programs that we host, the things that we believe, why we do what we do, etc. You can also check out AmericanMoment.org/donate if you are so inclined. Please rate and review this podcast. Five stars only, please. We also prefer a written review. Uh, if you give a... I actually haven't checked this in a while, but let me pull it up here. If you give a written review, um, I would be more than happy to read your comments uh, on the air. Um, I'm just checking to see if there are any... I don't see any new ones. So if you go and do that, uh, I will I will pull those up next time or I'll make sure that Sarab does it and we will make sure to read it on air. Thank you very much for joining us again and we'll see you next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.